I imagine that you could write a pretty useful book on prayer from just that one single verse. You could point out, first of all, that the prayer was earnest. The Greek word there means intently, fervently, or constantly, and probably all of those are intended here. You could point out, secondly, that the prayer being offered was specific. It was for him, for Peter. It was, thirdly, to God. Prayer generally should be made to God the Father through Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Finally, you could point out that this prayer was prayer by the church. It was corporate prayer, and that, I think, would be a useful model. Prayer should be made in earnest with specificity to God by the gathered church. That works as a model. But it does not necessarily guarantee results. James was executed. Peter was released. And I don't think we're to assume from that that the church didn't pray for James. I'm sure they did. But prayer doesn't guarantee results. Even good prayer, properly offered, does not guarantee results. Prayer is not the means by which we twist God's arm. Sometimes we have not because we ask not, but sometimes we have not because God wills not. And we need to be careful to see both of those truths in Holy Scripture. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. And sometimes we have not because God wills not. That feels like an important distinction. On one hand, Christians ought to be praying people. But on the other hand, Christians ought not to think that our praying somehow puts God under our power. That sounds complicated, but it also sounds very biblical. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 12. Chapter 11 ended with the story of relief being sent from Antioch down to Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. F.F. Bruce, in his book, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, dates this visit as occurring around the year AD 46. Now, some scholars dispute that, but it does seem to roughly correspond to the opening words of Acts 12. Luke says that about that time, Herod laid violent hands on some belonging to the church. History suggests that Herod died in AD 44. And we know that event followed hard upon his decision to have James killed because those events became linked in the popular thinking of Christians and many Jews at the time. Luke seems to be shifting his focus to events in Jerusalem and catching us up on some things that were happening there about that time. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, it can be very hard to keep all these Herods in the Bible straight. There are a number of them. This one is Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great. 
He worked hard to maintain a good standing among the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, and therefore it comes as no surprise that he would attempt to curry favor by arresting and executing leaders of the early church. Verse 4 says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, I imagine that you could write a pretty useful book on prayer from just that one single verse. You could point out, first of all, that the prayer was earnest. The Greek word there means intently, fervently, or constantly, and probably all of those are intended here. You could point out, secondly, that the prayer being offered was specific. It was for him, for Peter. It was thirdly, to God. Prayer generally should be made to God the Father through Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Finally, you could point out that this prayer was prayer by the church. It was corporate prayer, and that I think would be a useful model. Prayer should be made in earnest with specificity to God by the gathered church. That works as a model. But it does not necessarily guarantee results. James was executed. Peter was released. And I don't think we're to assume from that that the church didn't pray for James. I'm sure they did. But prayer doesn't guarantee results. Even good prayer, properly offered, does not guarantee results. Prayer is not the means by which we twist God's arm. Sometimes we have not because we ask not, but sometimes we have not because God wills not. And we need to be careful to see both of those truths in Holy Scripture. James was not released, but Peter was. And verse 6 tells that story. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Let's just pause here to explain that this is the same John Mark associated with the Gospel of Mark. Apparently, his mother was very wealthy, which would explain his excellent education and his qualification to serve as Peter's translator and scribe. 
Let's notice also that the church is still praying. This was obviously a multi-night, all-night prayer meeting. Fervent prayer is constant prayer. Verse 13, and when he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, many Jews believed in guardian angels, and some appeared to have believed that the angel would even look like the person that they were guarding, and that seems to stand behind the rather comical confusion that Luke is narrating here, verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, the James in this case obviously refers to the brother of Jesus, not the James brother of John who was just executed earlier in the story. James, the brother of Jesus, became a leader in the early church. We are told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that the resurrected Jesus appeared personally and bodily to James, at which point we assume that he was converted. Shortly thereafter, he appears to have taken on a leadership role in the church in Jerusalem. He seems to function as a sort of chairman of the board at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and he is well attested in extra-biblical sources as a leader of the early Christian community. That is the James that Peter wants updated with respect to his miraculous release. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I have a number of questions about that story, and I imagine that many of our listeners do as well. First of all, are guardian angels actually a thing? Uh, you mentioned that the Jewish people at that time believed that every member of the Old Covenant community had their own personal angel. But you didn't say what you thought about that, and you didn't say whether you thought that concept carried over into the New Covenant era. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. The Catholic Church just down the street from us is called Guardian Angels Church. So obviously that's a part of the Christian tradition, but as Protestants, we want to know if there's any actual biblical support for that tradition. And there is. Now, I'm not saying that everything that Jewish people believed then was biblical, and I'm not saying that everything that Catholic people believe now is biblical on this topic. I'm just saying the idea of a guardian angel is not entirely unbiblical. In Matthew 18.10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Hold on a second. I I'm not sure I've ever heard that verse before, and it sure does sound like it supports the idea of guardian angels. It says pretty clearly that these little ones have a personal angel who's responsible to God up in heaven. It seems pretty open and shut to me. Yeah, well, there's definitely something going on here for sure. That phrase, these little ones, might refer to children, as in believers who are children or the children of believers. 
but it more probably means the lowest and least of those who are Christians. So Jesus seems to be saying that even the humblest of Christians has a personal angelic representative. Now, as to the function of these representatives in the Bible, angels seem to function as agents of communication and care, meaning they report to God and they enact providential decisions. Now, obviously, it isn't as though God doesn't know what's going on. He knows everything, but he appears to have set up the world in such a way that he may be said to receive information from these heavenly intermediaries. We see that in Zechariah with the horseback riders who relay information, and then we see that with the chariot drivers who enact providence. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Revelation. Okay, but in all of those cases, the angels are reporting on nations and kings, major actions and issues in the world. Yeah, exactly. And and now here, Jesus is saying that it isn't just kings and nations and big issues that are subject to the kind of careful oversight we're talking about here. It's every single believer, even down to the least of these. The littlest member of Jesus' family is the subject of frequent reports and the recipient of providential action and concern. That's the essence of Jesus' warning to his listeners here. He's saying in Matthew 18, don't mess with Christians because every single one of them has an angel making reports and carrying out acts of providence on God's behalf. Okay, that's really cool. I don't think I've ever thought about that like that before, but I like it. Yeah, I like it too. Okay, I mentioned I have a few questions about this story, so let me fire another one at you. Shoot. All right, so, well, I think the big question any reader of that story would have is, why did God save Peter and not James? Hmm. They were both part of the inner circle, so why not save both? Yeah, I admit that's the question on my heart every time I read the story in Acts 12. If you think about it, James was, as you say, a top-tier disciple. He was the brother of John, and and these two were the very first disciples called by Jesus. Interestingly, while James was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for his faith, his brother John was the last of the 12 to die. So they were like bookends, which means that John spent probably 50 years separated from his brother, who he was basically joined to the hip with in the gospel narratives. That must have been incredibly difficult for him. Hmm, Yeah, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 14 and 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's almost as if Jesus was saying to John, can you love me and follow me even if it means being separated from your brother? Do you think that's why God didn't rescue the apostle James here? Yeah, I don't know. And obviously we can't know. Uh, Why does God rescue one Christian teenager from a terrible car accident and not the other? Mm. I know moms who have spent the last 30 years wrestling with that very question. We don't know. And I think that's probably part of the reason the story is in the Bible. I think if the story was just that, you know, Peter was arrested and then the church prayed and then Peter was released, if, if that was it, then I think Bible readers would would think that Scripture is saying that If we pray, bad things won't happen to our loved ones. Okay, but that's not true. Christians get cancer at the same rate as non-Christians. Christians die in car accidents at about the same rate as non-Christians. This story isn't saying that bad things never happen to praying people. It is saying that praying matters and that the God we pray to is able to save people from perishing. It doesn't promise that he will, but it does demonstrate that he can. Mm. 
Yeah, you said something in the program audio along the lines of, sometimes we have not because we ask not, but sometimes we have not because God wills not. That's important for us to understand, but I, I guess I'd still want to ask, why did God not will for James to be saved? Well, I can't say for sure, but I recently heard a good sermon on this from one of our associate pastors here, and he said, some Christians witness to God in their living, and some Christians witness to God in their dying. And I think there's some real truth to that. When Christians refuse to deny Christ, even at the cost of their own lives, that gets the attention of people in our culture who don't believe in anything more than they believe in themselves. If someone is willing to die rather than deny Christ, then that Christ must be wonderful. He must be glorious. He must be worthy, at least in their estimation. And that kind of sacrifice tends to create eager listeners. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's a hard truth, but I think it's an important one for us to remember, given what may lay ahead for us in the years and decades to come. Thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, records a very similar version of this story and also attributes the death of Herod to the fact of his unusual hubris in allowing himself to be spoken of as if he were a god. Josephus says that he was immediately struck with some sort of painful intestinal disease and died terribly shortly thereafter. Verse 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Verse 25 perhaps supplies the logical reason for the arrangement of these stories in Luke's mind. Chapter 12 as a whole is a sort of summary chapter wherein he tells us some of what has been going on in Jerusalem during the same time that he has been focused on events up in and around Antioch. During the time when the church was growing in Antioch and the Gentiles were coming in and the missionaries were starting to go out, stuff was happening down here in Jerusalem as well. Herod was acting up and arresting key leaders, but the church was praying and God was working to preserve his people and to defend them from their enemies. And after all of that, Barnabas and Saul came down to Jerusalem with a relief package from Antioch. And when they went back, they took with them John Mark, a young man who will feature prominently in the story of their future travels. And all the while, in both locations, the word of God was increasing and multiplying. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to the ending of that story about King Herod. I find that really interesting. Once again, we have an angel, this time delivering death instead of deliverance. Angels are all over this story. 
Am I making too much of that? Or are we supposed to be picking up on that pattern here? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think at the end of the day that this is a story about providence. This is a story about how God is watching and how God is involving himself in human affairs. David G. Peterson, in his commentary, summarizes what the story is about. He says, God has shown that he is still sovereign over those who conspire against him and his people, close quote. So the two halves of this story obviously go together. In the first half, we have a really important person and a really powerful gospel witness being silenced. Herod laid violent hands on the apostle James, the brother of John, and put him to death by the sword. So it looks for all the world like Herod is in charge. It looks for all the world like evil has the upper hand. The church prays really hard and Peter is released, praise the Lord. But let's be honest, things are not all that great even still. Everyone is in hiding. Peter doesn't even come in to celebrate his release with his own prayer group. He runs away. He goes underground. So these are not great times for the church. The tyrant seems to have the upper hand. But then guess what? God sends an angel. Another angel. Yeah, exactly. Another agent of providence. One to unlock a door and one to kill a king. And then all of a sudden, the situation has changed. The pressure is off. The persecution is over, at least for now. And the church comes back above ground. That's how Luke ends the story. He says, the word of God increased and multiplied, Acts 12, 24. And then he goes on to tell us that not only did the church survive and not only did the word begin to increase and multiply, but the church entered into a time of expansion. He tells us about how all the main characters involved in the first great cross-cultural missionary venture began to assemble at Antioch. He says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, as Bible readers know, that was the team that was sent out on what we now refer to as Paul's missionary journey. More about that in the next chapter. The point is that the persecution under Herod was short-lived. He pressed down. Some people died. Some key leaders died. The church briefly went underground, but then an agent of providence was sent out by God. The oppressor was killed. The persecution ended. The church came out and eventually began to grow and expand. Yeah, that is awesome. Now, I imagine there's a lesson in there for us somewhere, because it feels like right now we're headed toward the first part of Acts 12. I don't think anyone would be surprised if in our lifetime, maybe pastors in North America started being arrested, maybe even executed for preaching the gospel. Acts 12, 1 to 5 might be a decade away or more in this culture, but then Acts 12, 20 and following would seem to suggest that God can handle it, he's watching, he's got a plan. Is that really the intended takeaway here? Well, I can't guarantee any kind of timeline, but you're bang on in terms of the general principle. Listen, what we're supposed to see here is that persecution should be expected. But when it happens, we need to know a couple of things. We need to know, first of all, that some people may die. There is no promise in the Bible that good Christians will be exempt from suffering. James was a good Christian, and he was arrested, and he died. But some people will be miraculously rescued. So we should pray, and we should wait and be faithful and not lose our minds, because eventually the tyrants who are orchestrating the persecution will fall under the judgment of Almighty God. Agents of providence will be sent out, and the oppressors will perish, and the persecution will come to an end, and the church will heal, grow, and expand. This has happened dozens of times 
over the course of Christian history. And should the Lord tarry, it will happen again. You know how I know? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe that. So I'm not planning to blow up the government. I'm not plotting the downfall of the prime minister or anyone else in power. God knows what's going on. God sees. And when it is time, he will act. He will send out agents of providence and alter the equation in Canada. I believe that. I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist when it comes to the cause of the Christian church in this country. Jesus is going to build his church. The prime minister is not going to get in the way of that. The premier is not going to get in the way of that. Nothing is going to get in the way of that. So I'm just going to get back to work. I'm going to focus on the tasks that we were assigned. Yes, sign me up for that too. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.